Hello everyone, I'm Catherine Haddon, a Senior Fellow here at the Institute for Government and I have the great pleasure uh, of chairing this book launch for my colleague Hannah's excellent and timely new book, Held in Contempt, What's Wrong with the House of Commons? Quick plug at the beginning, more plugs later. Um, just before we kick off, some brief housekeeping arrangements. Uh, we'll be live tweeting the event uh, at IFG events with the hashtag IFG Commons. Uh, please do tweet along. Uh, for those of you watching online, do ask questions. Uh, you've all got the Slido link. Uh, please post them and I'll try and bring them in during the course of the conversation. If you can give your name and organization, especially where that's relevant, that really helps. Uh, for those of you in the room and in the overflow room, uh, we'll come to questions from you later. Uh, so be prepared to put up your hands and also do let us know again who you are, where you're from, because it really helps uh, those watching at home to understand that as well. So. On the day that Hannah's book uh, was released, the Prime Minister came to Parliament to make a statement to MPs about re re receiving a fixed penalty notice. Two days later, MPs voted to investigate whether the Prime Minister had committed a contempt of Parliament. And in the two weeks since, a renewed debate has emerged about sexual harassment, bullying and sexism in Parliament. After one anonymous MP made misogynistic allegations to the Daily Mail about Angela Rayner, Neil Parrish has stood down after admitting watching porn during a Commons debate. Liam Byrne has been banned from Parliament for two days for bullying a member of his staff. And Imrad Ahmed Khan has finally relinquished his seat after being found guilty of a sexual assault on a minor. And more recently, Jamie Wallace has been charged with failing to stop after a traffic collision. And that is before we get to issues of Parliament's procedures and the building itself. So it seems a very timely moment to talk about what is wrong with our parliament and perhaps remind ourselves what we should value about it and also to consider what MPs themselves need to do to fix it. So I'm really pleased to be joined by an excellent panel who've seen parliament operate from many different angles and have been all very closely involved with the issues we're talking about today. Hannah White, whose book we are discussing, probably needs a little introduction, but I'm doing it anyway. Uh, our Deputy Director and a leading commentator on Parliament, but as she used to work in Parliament as a clerk and also ran the Committee on Standards in Public Life, she's been a, in a unique position to observe the workings of Parliament from many different directions. Very pleased to have Karen Bradley, MP, uh, MP for Staffordshire Moorlands, Chair of Parliament's Procedure Committee, who have responsibility for a lot of the stuff that we're talking about today, a member of the Liaison Committee, as well as formerly a Secretary of State for both Northern Ireland and for Culture, Media and Sport. And Chris Cook uh, is currently Senior Reporter at the FT, but in his previous work, both at Newsnight and then later for Tortoise, was instrumental in breaking <coughs> some of the earliest post-Weinstein stories on sexism and bullying allegations uh, that came out from parliamentary staff and which led to the creation of the current standard system. So a fantastic panel to get talking about all that is going on at the moment and more generally in Parliament. Hannah, I kind of have to start with you, I guess. Um, it feels so timely, the book, right now, but obviously the book's been a long time in gestation. What was your original thinking behind it? What did you want to achieve with the book? Thank you, and thank you for a nice, easy question to start with. I'm sure that uh, everyone will have harder ones for me as we go on. Um, I think what I really wanted to do with the book was sort of start a debate, as many people do when they write books. Um, and I did feel, as you, as you were saying, Kath, that I had a bit of a unique position in some ways, and that I'd worked in Parliament as a member of staff in Parliament, but then I'd had the opportunity to come out and look at Parliament 
um, from the outside. And I was constantly struck by how different Parliament looks when you're on the inside and how it looks when you're on the outside and the contrast between those things. And so, I mean, I'm, a, I'm really a sort of profound supporter of representative democracy, but I think the book came from, from a place of sort of frustration about the sort of affected helplessness that MPs sometimes have around their own position, that um, sort of things go wrong and they throw up their hands in horror and they say, gosh, isn't it terrible that, you know, public has low trust in us and, you know, you know, you know it's just a sort of condition of, of, um, of, of UK sort of politics that, that people don't trust MPs and they don't trust Parliament. And I just constantly have this sense that, well, actually, there are things that can be done. And, and why are you surprised when, you know, MPs, I think, have an unusual degree of control over their own workplace. Like most of us don't get to set the rules in our own workplaces to the extent that MPs do. And they have consistently chosen in, in lots of ways to uh, leave themselves quite a lot of latitude about how, how they behave and leave things to the discretion of the honorable member. Um, and I guess the sort of question I had, which sort of stimulated the writing of the book was, you know, well, why do you expect things to be different? If, these are the, if this is how you, how you want the rules to be, because it suits you for the rules to be like this, um, or it's, you know, in some ways it's, it's the rules are sort of, um, you know, leave discretion to the honourable member. In other ways, the rules are really suit certain vested interests within the House of Commons, the way things are set up. If you don't choose to change that, then why are you surprised when the public has low trust? Why are you surprised when some people choose to use the latitude to stretch it to its limits and then sometimes step over those limits. So, yeah, it was, it was really an uh, attempt during lockdown to pull together some of that thinking and get it down on paper. Yeah, the, uh, the question my mum posed last night, she read the book over the weekend, um, was how did you manage to make it so timely? But actually, I mean, you've been writing it for a couple of years and yet so much has happened. It must have felt like you're constantly, what, revising or just adding to the weight of evidence? Well, I did, I did do some last-minute revisions, mm -hmm. but, I mean, <laughs> and in some ways I felt that the fact I delivered it nine months late to the publisher was a good thing in terms of the day it actually ended up coming out. <laughs> uh, but then I was sort of reflecting, and I thought, well, actually, if I'd delivered it nine months earlier, it would have come out just before the Owen Patterson scandal, mm -hmm. and, you know, then I would have been talking about it in that context. So I don't think it's, you know, there were actually, if you cast your mind back, quite a lot of moments um, sort of... Parliament, unfortunately, supplies us with a constant stream of moments when these sorts of thing, themes need to be talked about. So I think, hopefully, you know, this can be the start of a bit of a, a adding to that debate. Yeah. Karen, turning to you, I feel like we have to start with what's live at the moment, what's been talked about the last couple of weeks. Uh, what's the mood like in Parliament? What's it like being an MP going through all of this? Well, today it's very quiet because we're not sitting. <laughs> but... Um, I would say it's quite, it feels quite brutal, actually. It feels like a, not a nice place to be at the moment. I mean, as you said, I chair the House of Commons Procedure Committee, and I served on the Procedure Committee before I became a minister. And when I was relieved of my duties, I thought, what am I going to spend my time doing? And I thought, well, procedure's an interesting thing. You know, the election came. I could put myself forward to chair the Procedure Committee. We've had all the exciting procedure over Brexit. Yeah. It'll be a nice place to be. And about a week later we found that we had coronavirus and suddenly we had the biggest change in procedure that we'd had for 600 years 
So this sort of nice distraction became a full-time occupation and obsession. And, and I think today I was reading, rereading Hannah's book, reminding myself of some of the points, and I just kept reading and thinking, goodness me, you know, we thought Brexit, and, you, know, mm. you read it in horror at times of all the things that we went through during Brexit, didn't think it could get worse. COVID couldn't possibly get worse. And now it feels like it is. And it's, it's interesting what Hannah said about looking at it from the inside versus the outside world. And it's true, we, we, as, a as MPs, we do perhaps hide behind the procedure a little bit, but we also um, have it as our kind of um, shield against these things. And when procedure doesn't shield us against it, when procedure doesn't allow us to change things, because mm. ultimately, there's going to have to be political will to change things now. Yeah. I see that political will from some parts of politics, we need to see it across the board now. And we need to say, watershed moment, we can't go on because representative democracy, look at Ukraine, we know how important represent representative democracy is. I know the privilege I have and the privileges I have of being an elected representative. Those privileges are going to, they're going to disappear if we don't sort our act out and get things changed. So we have a great piece of work, great body of work there that we can base many of the recommendations on, but I think it's going to take more now than that. Yeah, yeah, the will of it. I mean, turning to that, Chris, obviously you were instrumental in, in breaking some of these stories after Harvey Weinstein and the, the Me Too movement, but it feels like allegations of bullying or sexual misconduct now, they, they swiftly get into the papers when, you know, there's a story to be written up, but how hard was it to put together the stories back when, when you were first talking to parliamentary staff? Was there even acceptance by the authorities that there was a problem? So, um, so when you're doing a, a, when you're reporting on something like this, one of the difficulties is often that you, you'll talk to say 10 people and seven of them will give you a consistent account and three will completely disagree. And then you have to sort of work out, are the seven right or the three right or is there just a difference of perspective? But actually one of the really astonishing things about this is we, we spoke, I can't remember the actual number, it was over 100 people in the course of doing all this, and there was basically complete consensus that there was a problem. So, they, so we're talking to staff, really, so clerks particularly. And it was, they, they disagreed on the sort of fine print, so we found people who said it's men and women, and there people who said, oh, it's much more women. And um, we found people who um, would disagree about who the worst offenders were. But we got to the point where, where we were sort of, um, someone would say to you, oh, well, um, there's this MP who keeps, who keeps, when he goes on committee trips, what happens is he basically tries to get his accommodation upgraded or tries to change his flight for a nicer flight. Um, and I someone smiling in the audience, she knows what I was about to say. Um, the, uh, and I'd say, oh, that's Mark Pritchard. And they'd say, yes, that is Mark Pritchard. This is a sort of commonplace thing. The MP, clerks discuss it. Lots and lots of clerks have had this experience. It's like, it's a thing that just happens all the time and it's completely in the water. And it took a long time to get people to understand that what we were talking about was unbelievably unprofessional, inappropriate workplace behavior because they're so normalized to it. And, there, and we heard this word resilient a lot, right? So resilient in the House of Commons doesn't mean resilient as you or I understand it. It means you must be willing to put up with behavior that is utterly unacceptable. People shouting at you, sexual harassment, and Good clerks, in particular, are people who are resilient, by which we mean they will not complain. And people who complain generally you know, lost their jobs. And part of the difficulty was just getting people to understand, who worked in that place, that what they were describing to us was sexual harassment, or it was bullying, or 
that was totally unacceptable because they've been so normalized to a completely bonkers atmosphere. We have people who basically apologize, we have one person in particular who apologized continuously to us for having let herself down because she basically allowed herself to be bullied out of her job. Um, it, we, one of the cases that we raised early on was, was uh, Paul Farrelly, who is the, uh, the uh, MP for Newcastle under Lyme until 2019. He didn't have a distinguished career in Parliament. Um, he was a sort of long-standing backbench committee MP, but we kept finding allegations that he was bullying clerks. And there was one case in particular, I was going to read out to you in a second a statement from him, because I just think it gets to a lot of these points. Um, so they, there was an investigation into him under an old process that's long since collapsed. Um, a clerk who investigated him found that they believed he had bullied a clerk to the point where she was unable to continue her work. Um, but then when this finding was presented to the Commission of the House of Commons, they agreed with Paul Farrelly's position, which was that it is unfair to have a non-MP investigate MPs. You can't, whoever does the investigating can't be a member of staff of the House because obviously they don't understand what MPs do. You know, the ethics of MPs can only be judged by MPs. And he actually, one of his sort of slightly odd statements was that um, you, it would be inappropriate for there to be action against MPs because MPs are elected either by the whole house or by their political party to serve on committees. And this creates a sort of magic process that conventional HR can't touch. Um, so, we, you know, they, they live in this universe, MPs, of being cosseted and being told that they can't, um, they can do no wrong. And at the same, internally, obviously, not by us, not by the press. But the, um, and clerks are continually told, you have to behave as though they are right, whatever happens, they are, they, you are the person in the wrong. Um, so yeah, it, it, was, it was sort of extraordinary because you had to get people to accept that there could be normal workplace behavior mm. in Parliament. Mm. And one of the things I, I try to explore in the book is, is like, is how MPs come to feel that way. Because I think actually, to a certain extent, it's really explicable. Like there are really good reasons why MPs are special in certain ways and have certain privileges, and, and Karen was talking about that. But some of them don't sort of um, think about what the appropriate limits to those are. I and think as you say, that's where you get to this sort of sense of, well, you just can't challenge what they do. So it's worth remembering that like, there is a lot of failed ambition in Parliament. Right? So there are lots of people whose, whose careers are have been catastrophic failures by their own lights. Like, this is common in lots of places, but like, we don't make footballers who fail to make it into the England team turn up and work at Wembley every day, right? These people live in the, in like the surroundings of their own failure in their own lights. And lots of them are miserable, corrupted humans by the whole experience. And we, we don't do anything about it. Obviously, they drink all the time. Like, there's a minority, but like, it's a real problem. And they, a lot of the corruption of the culture, so people are punted from committee to committee to committee just to keep them out of the way of everyone else because they're, they're wasting their lives and they're wasting our time and they're wasting a seat in the commons. And the, that is a sort of source of a lot of the, a lot of the problem. It's also the case that like the, the, um, the sort of specialness that they feel um, is, is sort of, it also comes out as sort of a team spirit about some of this stuff too. So, one of the things that's really striking with the Paul Farrelly investigation, we've got all the documents from all of this, right? And we can see that when the investigators go and interview all the staff, they'll say, yeah, he, he, bullied, he bullied this woman in front of other MPs. And then you go and talk to the MPs and they say, well, I didn't, I didn't see anything. I don't know what you're talking about. You know, 
even MPs of other parties, there's like an instinctive, well, I wouldn't want this to happen to me. You know, this is, this is going to be... Um, and anyway, he was just asking for things. It was, you know, he was in his rights to ask for stuff. Like, it was really... It was really shocking how willing they were to cover for each other's bad behavior, even across parties. Um, and yeah, and I, f I found the whole thing sort of totally baffling in that, in that regard. Actually, there's, there's very little MPC more in common with each other when they're behaving badly than they do. Um, we'll, we'll come to the, the system in a minute and how that's improved. Um, Karen, we've got a question here building on, I guess, Chris's point. It, uh, from John Staples saying, is not the problem that the culture of is determined by a small caucus of members from safe seats who've been sitting in Parliament for, for many years. And we've also obviously heard the it's just bad apples kind of thing. Is it more of a systemic problem? You know, there was a great article this week about how actually a lot of it's down to sort of power and the power imbalances that, that go on in Parliament. Yeah, well, as one of the elected people here, I'm feeling <laughs> yes, yes. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, I'm not the only one in the room who's elected, yeah. by the way. Um, Look, there is a Westminster exceptionalism. There is an attitude that Westminster is somehow different from other legislatures around the United Kingdom um, and from um, and the, the people in there. And you've got to remember that when you are the MP for a constituency, as we all are, in the constituency, you are the only MP. Mm. You are exceptional in your constituency. I have never felt I was exceptional in Parliament because I'm one of a large number. But in your constituency, it's only you. Mm. So there is an element to which that uh, single uh, member constituency approach is always going to create a sense of exceptionalism. Um, I think that reluctance to tackle this sooner. So I think, I think we're at a point where we're almost at the same point as expenses were. And actually, expenses had to be totally and utterly reformed. But MPs didn't want to go there previously. Mm. And the result of not going there previous, earlier is that I still get, are you putting that on your expenses, are you? I came in in 2010, well after the expenses system was reformed. But it still is, it, it's cut through to the extent that everyone just thinks that's what MPs do. So if we don't tackle it now, if we don't come on and deal with this now, then I fear it's going to be an awful lot worse for MPs in the future. And I want to see more people want to become MPs. Mm. I want to see a more diverse parliament. I want to see a parliament that represents the country that we represent, not just a small part of the country. So I think some of your diagnosis of where the problems are might have a kernel of truth there. It's not entirely true. Um, but I think that if we don't grab it now and we don't show leadership, we are in danger of it being far, far worse. Yeah, Hannah, I mean, obviously, since the days of... of Chris's reports, we've had um, you know, a new system put in place. Where has that worked and where is it still struggling? What needs to be changed now? There's a lot more talk about new things that, that need to be brought in and, and you know, speakers conference, employment of staff, central employment of staff and so forth. What, what do you think are the most urgent issues? Well, there has been a lot of work done um, and it's, you know, it would be absolutely wrong to, 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 to not acknowledge that. And there is a new system, and the new system is great in that it has definitely um, delivered outcomes, right? There have been consequences for people who have um, done things. There have even been consequences for people who have done things and then said, well, I was, you know, I didn't really mean it when I said sorry, and then they've been, you know, reinvestigated under the system. Um, so, so that is really good, uh, that people can, can see 
that uh, it's not just the people who might complain who have to fear consequences for their career. And that's, uh, I'm afraid, what we heard last week from female MPs saying, you know, we don't necessarily feel confident to report these behaviours because we think the consequences will be for us rather than for the person who's doing something completely unacceptable. And, and that is obviously a really, really bad position to be in. So, so I think that is good. You know, there are problems with the system. It, it, it is slow. It is slow for you know, explicable reasons, but it makes it feel to people who, because there is also confidentiality under the system, nobody knows if an investigation is happening and, and there is no result <laughs> happening. You know, it's really difficult for people internally to understand um, you know, what's going on. That, that is, in, to some extent, sort of um, uh, unavoidable, but is also you know, maybe something that could be addressed to an extent with, with, with resources and, uh, and so on. I have to, in a really clerkly way, just raise the point that, um, and, you know, and Chris knows this, but it's not just clerks, right? And, and clerk is a really good shorthand for person who works for the administration of, of, of the House of Commons um, and is not employed directly by an MP. But it's, you know, clerks are actually uh, people who often have lots of contact with MPs, so they are affected by these issues, but there are lots of other m members of, of, of the... Of Including the people employed directly by the parties and... Yeah, and other people who are who are on the estate. So, yeah. but the point I wanted to come to is that there's been a lot done, but it can't just be about processes. And what I think we have seen um, uh, over the last couple of weeks with the, these issues emerging again is that you can work really hard and put in place, you know, processes which, as I say, you know, maybe can be improved in various ways, but you know, are, are basically a whole heap better than what there was <laughs> before. But unless the culture changes, and that's about you know, how quickly parties choose to act on sort of allegations. It's about the tone that's set from the top. It's about, you know, all these things. You, you know, the process is never going to be enough. Can I add to that? Just, mm. just about next week. Sorry, Chris. Last week, let, let's go through the specifics of last week. An, uh, an allegation was made in the meeting. I was at the meeting. I'm not going to talk about the meeting. I'm really pleased that the names of the people who made the allegations are not in the public domain. That is incredibly important. Nobody's going to come forward and say anything if their names go into the public domain. So I'm really grateful that that is the case. But I uh, woke up on Wednesday morning expecting to see XMP. I didn't know who it was. Mm. XMP has had the whip suspended. And mm. that didn't happen. And actually, what happened was people hid behind the processes. They said, oh, it's been referred to the ICGS. Therefore, we don't need to take action. That meant that we had three days of media speculation, really, really horrible for some of the people who were named as possibly, you know, were suspected mm. as being that absolutely horrendous, would have been so much better, and I have made this point, if immediate action had been taken, whip suspended, it would have been a slight Twitter storm the next day, and, and he may well have cleared his name, but it wouldn't be any worse, couldn't possibly be worse for him than it is now, mm. and it would have been a lot better for those other people who were drawn into it. So mm. I think quick action, say that sorry up front, get on and move on is a much better approach than what was allowed to happen last week. I think it's worth, I think I would draw on both of your thoughts. I think the, it's worth bearing in mind that before the current grievance process, I think there was only one case ever taken forward to a formal process by, by a member of staff. It was only open, the old process was only open to clerks not to broader people, but I think there was only one case at all ever uh, taken to a formal process in the last sort of 10 years or so, and now we've got dozens and dozens and dozens. 
And so the, and I've heard people say to me, um, it materially has made their lives better because they know they can they can speak back to MPs and hold the line, and it you know there's there's a there's there there's a there there right. The I think on um, I was going to make some profound points that have momentarily <laughs> escaped me. Um, Should we talk amongst ourselves? Yeah, we'll come yeah. back yeah. to you. Um, um, I mean, I did want to ask about whether or not there is actually the will in, in political parties to do this. We fe it feels like we've had a lot of talk this week about how, you know, this must not happen, want to have action and so forth. You remembered it. Yeah, that was what I was going to say. So I think <laughs> Great mind. To, to, to your point about the party not responding, so when, so when we published our, our first day, we did this big thing where we, we, we basically had dozens of interviews and we named three MPs, John Burko. Um, Mark Pritchard and Paul Farrelly as having serial allegations against them and no action taken. And I sort of thought, right, so it's going to go online. So, go, so new, I was on Newsnight, so it went on like 10.30pm. Uh, it'll be in the next morning's papers. They'll probably lose the whip by midday, mm. I would think. Um, they never lost the whip. They never got investigated as a consequence of our reporting. The party sort of cooked up this sort of, oh, well, if you get someone, if you get one of the people involved to complain to us, then we'll start an investigation. And we said, well, actually, they're, they're, in this case, these are clerks, right? They, they can't go to the Labour Party. You can't have an impartial officer of the House begin a Labour Party process, right? That's an uncomfortable place to be. Um, at every single point, the parties basically fail on this question. And actually, it goes beyond this stuff. So I don't, there was a terrible, terrible case, which again, actually, Newsnight covered extensively on a poor, a poor young man who, who killed himself. Um, after basically a, a conservative activist um, because of bullying related to the um, uh, related to, to being an activist, right? It was, it was on the, a road trip thing uh, where they were busing activists around the country, um, and it was you know it was serious. And the, the chairman of the party actually resigned over it. One of the chairman of the party resigned over it. But what was striking in that case again was that the the party sort of willingness to get involved, even in stuff that was really sensitive and, and where they have a clear duty of care to people who are clearly vulnerable, everything came too late and everything was too slow and too difficult. And their willingness to sort of, to just step in and say, actually, this is unacceptable behavior and this is not what it means to be a you know, conservative or, or a Labour MP or whatever, is just totally lacking as like mm. an impulse. The whole thing is, it just feels like the whole thing is like, has this gone to a journalist yet? We'll wait to see what happens when it gets public. Um, and as you say, I was, I was really astonished, actually. I thought it would get more, more interest that the Conservative Party's response being told that one of their MPs um, watched pornography in the House of Commons was, well, there's, there's someone else can deal with it. Mm. And then in however many years it takes for that process to run out, it's proved to be true, then we'll look at it as an issue. Mm. I have to say, the quickest way, if you want to deal with, um, with an MP, um, you know, just call me. Mm. Right, I'm very happy to, right, that's like honestly still the quickest way to deal with an MP. But if right. I can make the point on behalf of MPs, our careers can be destroyed mm. like that mm. by a false allegation, just destroyed. And we are, you know, we're always up for election. There's a sense, you know, you have to have an ego to put yourself forward for this. And then there's a sensitivity around, well, what, how, what's this going to translate like on the doorstep? How, what's the pickup on this going to be? I mean, I was really reluctant whether I should do any press over the weekend. Mm. And then I decided I had to do press 
because otherwise it was going to be misrepresented mm. and what had been said would be misrepresented and and then I got a load of abuse for it mm. and you know and I know I'm now in the spotlight and like that someone can make an allegation and that's my career over mm. so I think you have to remember that this is a very unstable profession and that's perhaps part of the problem that you know you can destroy us really quickly don't please <laughs> Not those of us that don't misbehave. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, uh, there are so many other issues in the book that uh, also need to be talked. You know, uh, governance of, of Parliament as a whole, uh, the relationship between executive uh, and, and um, Parliament, procedural reform, restoration and renewal, and so forth. Um, we talked a little bit about the exceptionalism theme that comes out in your book, but obviously another one is about overall stewardship of the Commons. Um, do you see this as being sort of another issue where actually you need um, leadership? And where does that come from? Does it come from the top of the political parties? Does it come from the Commons? We've got Lindsay Hoyle obviously proposing a Speaker's Commission, but, you know, where does, where does the leadership happen? So thinking about this sort of in general, so obviously it applies to the current situation we're in, but also I think the thing I try to look at in the book is how it, how it applies to sort of just reform of Parliament in, in lots of different ways, as you say events with the restoration of the palace um, and why progress hasn't been made on that, things to do with aspects of procedure um, and so on. And I think that, um, sorry, I've completely lost my train of thought. Uh, whether or not what governance of the house. Oh yes, the governance of the house. Yeah. So um, I think that the, the, the fundamental conundrum is that you have a parliament which is an institution with an ongoing existence which belongs to all of us, right, as members of, of the public. And then you have a parliament which is a set of people who are elected right now. And it's the set of people who are elected right now who get to make all the decisions on behalf of the parliament of the future. And so, but the incentives are different for them than they might be if, if you sat them down and said, what would you like parliament, where would you like to, it to be in 50 years' time, versus what is the decision you'll make today, which is in the interest of you and your party and your constituents right now. And so the, all of the governance of the House sort of necessarily is built to say that you know, members decide, today's members decide how the House will run today. But I think it's, that's kind of problematic because the last thing, I mean, and this is in the nicest possible way, but sort of the last priority for many members is, is being a steward of the House as an institution because they have to think about their constituents and their party and their own career and their interests and all the sort of causes that they support. And then they get, you know, somewhere down right at the bottom of the list to, you know, I want a strong parliament, which is the institution I want to be proud to be a part of, which mm -hmm. is going to function as, as part of our, you know, democratic system. So asking them to say, to sort of, in a situation which is a breaking news thing and deciding whether to comment or not, to be bearing in mind the strength of the institution, which, you know, that's a really hard ask. But it also means that if it's all the current members who are making decisions, that has a direct impact, I think, on, on the parliament that we then get in future. Because not just, you know, do we re renovate the palace or not, but... Everyone who is now a member of Parliament has, by definition, 
overcome all the barriers there are to being, <laughs> becoming a member of parliament. Mm. They've made all those sort of um, trade-offs internally about what they're prepared to do to become a member of parliament and what they're prepared to put up with in terms of the way the institution is run. And they've overcome all that and they're there and they're doing the job and they've made those trade-offs and then they get to decide how it operates. All the people who are outside Parliament and would make amazing MPs and possibly a much more diverse and representative set of MPs don't get a say. Mm. And so decisions, so I mean, this is something I know that your, your committee is looking at, decisions about, um, you know, procedures changed a lot in relation to coronavirus, as you say. In some ways, you know, coronavirus was a really is a really terrible episode for the country it's also been an amazing sort of experimental episode for lots of institutions, including Parliament. Mm. Um, but it's, it, uh, and in lots of ways, the procedures and things that were tried in the course of COVID were, were good from an inclusion point of view. For example, you know, people who were very sick, for example, could use a proxy vote, um, which otherwise they would have been, you know, left unable to use their, their vote under previous systems. Now, the, you know, the, the current set of members have essentially um, said, under the guidance of the government and the majority of the government, we largely want to just return to the way things were, thank you very much. Now, the procedure committee is, is I know, looking at different aspects of what was done and, and, and maybe thinking about whether that's right or not. But the, I, I, think it, I just think it's a shame that the governance of the House, in some ways, um, sort of uh, militates against innovation in ways which could benefit the public and, and you know, other potential MPs, mm. because sort of necessarily it says, well, current MPs get to, get to decide. Just, um, we've got just a shout out to some of the questions coming through uh, on Slido. Uh, there's a lot of them which are just almost reinforcing some of the points that have already been made about need for formal HR structure and to, to you know, reflect how other organizations work. There's a few clerks anonymously uh, posting support. Uh, somebody asked the question, yes, Hannah did speak to staff who work there. She knows a lot of them. Um, and, and also comments uh, from somebody who worked in Brussels about how important that was when they changed uh, from an MEP employed assistance uh, to an approved parliamentary assistant, which couldn't include family members who were employed directly by the EP. That was from uh, Deborah Newton-Cook. Um, but just before, I want to talk a bit in a second, Karen, about that point about is this turning people off, um, the public off, off, off of Parliament, but also people off of being MPs. There's a question from Paul Evans about the danger of a House of Saints uh, appearing. But before I do that, you, you know, um, but before I do that, Chris, I mean, one of the problems we talked about in terms of vested interests, um, we've had a bit of an example on that on, on MP second jobs. Obviously, it was a huge issue. Um, especially last year, and before Christmas, the House of Commons agreed to think about reasonable limits on, on second jobs, but it, it seems to have died down, and the Committee on Standards and the government seem to have reached a consensus of putting it in the too difficult box. I think you've looked into that a little bit. Yeah, so, so one, of the things about, one of the things that may surprise you to know about second jobs is we don't actually know how much MPs earn from their second jobs. And for the single largest class of MPs who who make proper money out of a second job, we don't even know who is paying them. So if you're a, um, if you're a lawyer or an accountant and your money comes through a lawyerly or accountantly relationship, there is no obligation on you to tell everyone who your clients are. 
So I could go to Jeffrey Cox, and I could pay him 500,000 pounds for his advice, and I could leave. Maybe I'll pay him 500,000 pounds just for that hour, and he has no obligation to tell anyone that that's what's happened. And we leave it to their trust that they're, you know, that this is, everything is above board, and, you know, the, the, I asked Jeffrey Cox about this, and he said, oh, well, of course, in Britain, you know, you're basically paid by the hour as an accountant, as a, as a barrister, so it's sort of, it's kind of kosher, and you don't have any professional obligation beyond the one that you're paid for. But, I mean, okay, all right, if you believe that. Um, we, we looked um, across the piece, that piece at, um, um, at where MPs make their money from as in their second jobs, which is really hard to do because the because, as I said, no one knows how much it is because it's basically, the information is not actually published in a meaningful or useful way. And the, um, the biggest category, biggest relation, the most common relationship is with pollsters, which is actually small amounts of money. They get a few hundred quid a month for filling in, uh, potentially for filling in uh, surveys. About 100 um, MPs get uh, income from the media regularly. 63 are councillors, you know, okay, fine. Um, 37 of them, which is the biggest single category, are from uh, finance, then PR or lobbying is the next one. 30 MPs get their income from that. 30 MPs make it money from law. Again, we don't have no idea where that money is actually from. Uh, about 25 MPs get money from tech or telecoms companies. And I think the really striking thing about that is it's comically unrepresentative of the British economy. The idea that these second jobs are helpful for understanding the broader economy is obviously nonsense. What it strikes, what's striking is that those are the very heavily regulated sectors that will really, really want lobbyists in Parliament. The point of those sectors, what unites all of those categories, are they are all people that face the threat of continual government regulation. It's why the gamblers spend loads of money on, you know, on taking people out to the races, right? It's, it's, it, it works the other way around. They're not getting experience from this second job process. Other industries with vested interests are buying the time of MPs, and we absolutely have to see it in those terms. And I, I appreciate that like, not all MPs are corrupt, but equally, you look, and most of them are corrupt, I should say. Um, but equally, you look, you look at, like, let's be clear, right? Theresa May was paid hundreds of thousands of pounds to speak to banks, right? What are they buying? Come on, seriously, like, are they great, motivational, charismatic speaker, right? Someone with great insight into the future of finance? No. They're buying a former prime minister to speak and to, you know, to get to, to lobby her um, so that when things come up, you know, they hope that she'll be helpful. Obviously, come on. Like, what world are people living in? I, know. I think current and future uh, prime ministers might be a bit upset if you curtailed the prime minister speaker um, circuit for their future careers. But Karen... Push back. So, yeah. so I used to work for a major accounting firm. I'm a chartered accountant, chartered tax advisor. And we used to have our big party, uh, big management conferences once a year, and we'd get motivational speakers in. So we had Ellen MacArthur one year. I suspect we paid Did them. you get Theresa May? Uh, we, she was a, a backbench, um, uh, she was a frontbencher at the time, so she didn't do that kind of thing at that point. But we had Ellen MacArthur. She didn't come to talk to us about... Um, lobbying is on sailing or anything like mm. that. And we didn't ask her to come and speak to us so we could then do more tax finance for, for sailing. She came to give us some motivational speaking. So I don't think you should be quite as cynical that, you know, sometimes these organisations are looking for an interesting speaker who can talk about something different from their everyday 
world. Mm. And Theresa May. No, but it is also about like big name recognition. Yeah. You know, anyway, let's not get let's not get into that Don't be so specific case. <laughs> um, Karen, just to put aside the cynicism, you know, what do you say to people who are contemplating a career in Parliament that you know this can change, there can be future? Should they still want to to go into Parliament? Do you worry it will turn people off? Absolutely, of course I do. And the point that was made, we don't want a house of saints. Of course, goodness me, if we had a house of saints, you wouldn't have very many people who could put themselves forward. You know, we're all human beings. We all have our flaws. We all have, um, you know, issues and concerns. And, you know, there'd be lots of different reasons why people have ended up going into politics in the first place. But it is public service. I mean, you know, you're not doing it because you want to be to get the glory, because most of the time you're just going to get a load of abuse. You're not going to get much glory. But you do occasionally get that moment where you change something and you make somebody's life better. And it's something you can't do. And I got into politics because, as I say, I worked as a chartered accountant, chartered tax advisor, and I did a secondment working for um, the Conservative Party, and I went, wow, I can change things. I can make a real difference. I don't just have to complete a corporate tax return and have a row with the revenue about how much tax this business is paying. I can actually go and do something that makes a difference to people's lives. And so that's why I did it. And I think there is a genuine reason why we want to get more people who want to come in and make a difference to people's lives. And it is the most incredibly rewarding role that I've ever had. Um, it's diverse, it's different, you do some, you're never bored, mm. it's a different thing every single day. It's a really exciting and interesting job. However, it's the pressure that is there and we're not going to get people to even stand unless we can make the processes and make the codes of conduct and make the due diligence for candidates work. Mm. You know, some of the people who um, get elected, you just wonder how they ever got through the candidates programme. How did they ever get on a candidates list? You know, surely when they stood up and spoke at, a, um, at the interview process or something like that, somebody spotted this person had flaws, but they seem to get through, and that's across all the parties. So there's a real job here that everyone needs to, to do this, but let's make it so we're encouraging people. And I think the other thing is about role models, and it's not just about senior ministers. Being an MP, there's a very small number of people who get to be a minister, and an even smaller number who get to be a cabinet minister. And it's an incredible privilege, of mm. course it is. But it's an incredible privilege to be an MP in the first place. It's an incredible privilege to chair a select committee. It's an incredible privilege to speak in Parliament. It's the most terrifying thing you ever do the first time you do it. And if it's not terrifying, there's something wrong with you because you don't appreciate what you're doing at that point. But anyway, um, standing at the dispatch box the first time I spoke, knowing that my words were the government, mm. that's really scary. And I was scared. And it's knee-knocking time. And someone said to me, if it doesn't make your knees knock, then you probably shouldn't be a minister because you don't appreciate the magnitude of what you're doing but it is an incredible honor and privilege and i want to see many more people do the do the role but if we're not careful we're not going to attract them yeah i'm sure we've got lots of questions coming i see one already up um penny is coming round please say who you are and, and i might uh, are there others stick your hand up and i'll take another couple okay um go to Anand first because i named him and then uh, no not you Say who you are. Uh, I'm Anna Menon from King's College. I mean, no, we don't want saints, Karen, but we don't really want sexual harassers either. I mean, there's there's a big gap between the two. And I mean, what, what I've been thinking about since, since you were discussing it is, I get that Parliament is a unique institution, but whether or not it should be treated as unique, because a lot of the stuff that Chris said about the behavior that goes on, 
And a lot of the stuff that Karen said about the vulnerability of people to false accusations just made me think, it's academia. It's exactly the same. The problems are exactly the same. And if you go through the structural conditions, massive power discrepancies, power relationships wielded in very private settings between you know, two people, uh, dependence on someone else for your career progression, these are generic issues. And I think there's a real danger if we think Parliament should be allowed to fix this through parliamentary methods. It should be fixed through the law. We need a legal framework to stop this happening in any workplace. And I just worry sometimes that because we like talking about Parliament, because we know that there are things that make Parliament different to other organisations, we do bespoke stuff for Parliament. This is stuff we should be doing as a society for society. And it should include Parliament within its remit. Yeah, there's been a lot of talk about journalism. So Can I just come to another couple of questions over here and then I'll, I'll come back to you and then uh, do another round in a second. Hi. Hi. Maz Keating, House of Commons. Um, I had two questions. My first was to Karen. Um, so the trade unions, uh, the Workplace Equality Network for Gender Equality in Parliament and the Women and Equalities Committee have all called for an inquiry for the Procedure Committee um, to look at the possible suspension of MPs under investigation for sexual misconduct. The committee have rejected that. I just wondered if you could explain a bit about why you rejected that and given everything that's happened over the weekend, whether you'll reconsider it. Um, and my next question was for Hannah and Chris. What do you think the House of Commons authorities themselves, re regardless of the sort of political parties, could do to improve the culture in the House of Commons? Karen, do you want to start on that? Oh, actually, one question in front of you? Yeah, sorry from the Sunday Times. Um, it's probably mainly one for Chris, I think, but I think, Karen, you might have a view in terms of people's privacy as well. It's running, um, obviously, the media often is the kickstarter for a lot of these changes. Um, Chris, in terms of libel law, how often do MPs try and stop you from publishing through the courts, through legal threats, and how often does it work? Yeah, that's a good one to come back to. Karen, okay. start off. So I think your point, Anand, about academia is a really interesting one. And one of the things I hope that the Speaker's Conference will do is look at examples in other um, institutions, but also in parliaments around the world. I have to say, I am very um, in, much in favour of moving to a more centralised staffing system. Not stopping MPs from choosing their own staff. They're, you know, you do have to know that the person that you are going to share the most intimate constituents um, issues with. I mean, we do have to deal with the most incredibly difficult cases. You need to know you can trust them, that they're not going to go to the press. You need to know that they're not going to go and give information to the opposition. You need to know that they are loyal to you as the MP. So choosing the staff, but I think then the, the management of the staff and the HR, those central HR functions in every business I've ever worked in, um, your line manager might do your appraisal, but it's central HR that deals with um, with issues around conduct and, and other things. So I think that's fine. On um, uh, the Procedure Committee, so what the Women in the Qualities Committee asked us to do was to take advice as to what was possible. We've received that advice from the Clerk of the House of Commons and we've considered the advice that we've given. And the one of the problems we have, the Procedure Committee, essentially what we do is the bits between order, order and order, order. So we do the public business. 
we don't have the remit within our standing order to look at whether a pass can be taken off somebody. That would be the administration committee. We don't have the remit to look at how MPs are managing their, bu their business in their constituencies. We, don't, we just simply don't go that far. But the advi legal advice we were given was that this was a, would, have been, would be a very difficult thing to codify through the kind of work that we do as the procedure committee. What I'm really pleased about is that the speakers conference has now been announced and can look at all of this mm. because it's a much, much bigger issue. And, and we saw it when we looked at babies in the chamber. The issue around whether a baby should be in the chamber wasn't really the issue that anyone wanted to talk about. They wanted to talk about maternity cover, rights of new parents, the way parliament supports new parents. That is not something we can do as the procedure committee because it's beyond the scope of our standing order and parliament hasn't given us permission to look at it, which is frustrating, I know, but we can only, the procedure only allows, no, procedure, again, you see, it shows the procedures are quite, Hand tying, yeah. but it is a, a reality book on of the that. situation. Yeah. Um, just before Hannah, before you come in, just thank anyone in the overflow room. Thank you very much for being here. But do pop your head round, and we'll, we'll grab you if you've got a question for the for the next round. But Hannah, you wanted to come in on on that point. Yeah. Just to say, I mean, I think you know what you say is absolutely true, but it also is really illustrative of one of the problems with trying to do any sort of reform in Parliament, which is that there is no one person who can be the sort of advocate for Parliament and the system is divides up responsibilities and therefore makes change difficult to achieve because you know well there's the bit that is your responsibility there's a bit someone else's responsibility you know the speaker has some powers but actually far fewer than many people would think and setting up a speaker's conference is one thing he can do uh, but those are relatively rare so so I think that is one you know one of the one of the big problems with achieving change um, to go to your, um, your question now about like, the, the administration and what, I mean, I think the single biggest thing that the House of Commons administration, meaning the staff, the sort of permanently employed staff of the, of the House should do is check their deference. You know, every time they're sort of considering a question or, you know, thinking, you know, what is the right answer here? It's, you are so, I mean, this is what I reflect on having been in the House and then leaving. It is so ingrained in you that essentially members are, are always right and that sort of me members must be given what members ask for and you can sort of delegate your responsibility to an extent because at the end of the day you put forward what you think but if members don't go for it well you know it's up to members and I just don't think there's always enough challenge and there's too much of a sense of deference and I think that members you know a whole set of members would welcome that there were some that certainly wouldn't, and that's why uh, it doesn't happen because some members can be very unpleasant <laughs> when challenged, um, as we've seen in some you know things that have come out recently. I mean, if I can just add, I have enormous sympathy with what Ken Gall and the unions are calling for. Codifying it is the difficulty, and I think the other problem, and this was the persuasive thing for me was that the ICGS is set up specifically to have confidentiality for accuser and accused. And the reason the accused has confidentiality is to protect the accuser, to enable people to come. Though couldn't, you could not suspend a member of parliament from the house in a private way. It would have to be public. And that would then put an onus on the accuser that they would be more likely to be identified. And that for me was the most persuasive of the arguments against taking this further from a procedural point of view. 
but I think there are things that can be done holistically for the whole house. I want to come back to more questions, so Chris, just quickly on Lionel Moores. Um, they, so when we did the stuff, they, they consulted lawyers, but no more than the average fairly wealthy person. So we got, our, we got a letter from Paul Farrelly um, from Bindman's, the lawyers, and after we published, he then issued a statement saying he would obviously never sue us, but he didn't do that before we published. I quite enjoyed that. But they all, we all got, we got lawyers letters from all of them. In fact, from John Burke, we got a letter from the Speaker's Council, so from a publicly funded lawyer. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not a big deal. Privacy is a much bigger problem, but it's um, um, not yet reached Parliament. Like, it's not, it's not that big a deal, really. Okay, question. Oh, hi, Claire Foster-Gilbert from Westminster Abbey Institute. Uh, do you think this comes down to largely a question of moral character? And if so, do MPs have to arrive fully formed, fully morally formed, or can there be any way of helping cultivate good moral character once they're in? This also goes to a point about training that's been raised a lot recently. Uh, at the front then, Penny, if that's okay. And who else? I'm gonna go over here and then I'll try and get one more room because we're gonna run out of time, I'm afraid. Hi, Meg Russell from the Constitution at UCL. I'd like to preface what I say by saying something just because nobody else has said it, uh, that without wishing to downplay the problems in any way, I think it is important that somebody says that there are hundreds of decent, hard-working MPs in Parliament and that, you know, the endless focus on this kind of stuff mm. damages them. You know, we have one here in front of us. This is very difficult for them to do their jobs and we must acknowledge that they are there and I would suggest that they are in the, in the majority, actually, notwithstanding some of what's been said. What you said, Hannah, about um, uh, kind of stewardship of Parliament, I think is really interesting. Um, that today's MPs are kind of holding the place in trust for the future. And of course, that's a term that we've heard a lot about the environment in trust for the future. It's a parallel that Robert Saunders at Queen Mary has made about democracy, that mm. you know, we need to nurture our democracy as a sort of thing which is above and beyond what's going on right in the here and now for future generations. But it's a typical collective action problem. In the environment, we don't know how to tackle it. How do we tackle it? Who can do it? You know, how do you break that? Because it's a very fundamental kind of collective action problem. And then I have one specific question, if I may, based on what Quickly. I read in the book. Uh, that you talk about how Karen's committee can't get things onto the agenda, and can mm. be blocked by the government. But I wonder whether that is in part an example of the um, sort of feigned helplessness or whatever you, you referred to at the beginning. Because actually I was part of the right committee uh, which followed the last big crisis that we mm. had and put up pr uh, procedural reforms, one of which was the establishment of the Backlash Business Committee, which was there precisely to enable parliamentarians to get things onto the agenda that the government wanted to block. So why isn't that being used? I guess that's a question to both Karen and Hannah. Okay, and then I'm going to go for this one at the front. I'm very sorry for anyone else, but we're going to run out of time. There will be time afterwards you can, you can ask your questions personally. Hi, yeah, thanks. Uh, Jay Jackson from Voltfast. Um, does the panel think that, given sort of what we were talking about, about parliamentary exceptionalism, and sort of in the same spirit as the sort of party gate story has so much bite because it's about lawmakers becoming lawbreakers, that the culture of drug use in Westminster makes a mockery of our drug laws? Chris, I'm going to turn to you first on that one. The, I'm, I'm very square, unfortunately. Um, the, 
I can't, I don't know is the short answer. Um, the, I am unqualified to answer that question. Um, the, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Fine. Anyone there? No, no immediate stories Sorry. likely to break no, no, on, on all of that. I'm well, not what right about any reporter. of the other points that have been raised? Uh, can you remind me? You uh, training, developing their morals. Yeah, so, so I think the, the, we can't be, um, if you've built a parliament that can only function if you are going to recruit saints, then mm. it's not functional. Right? It has to be, you, we have to ask questions about why the institution is turning reasonable people into these monsters in some of these cases. Not all of them, I acknowledge. Meg, one or two are okay. The, um, but, the, um, but the, I mean, one of the, one of the thoughts I had um, was about whether we, with all this talk about moving parliament to other places, one of the difficulties is maintaining the dignity of the institution so that it has the sort of import that you want it to have. So it has a sort of democratic role. You know, there's the sort of the dignified bit of the constitution we have to maintain. And doing that without turning MPs, giving MPs the sort of sense of sort of immortality that some of them have. And the, I, I have a, my grand scheme is that we should move parliament to Hemel because Hemel is a really crap town. Oh. But like it's a, but like it's. You're really going for the controversial points this evening. But the point is, you actually you kind of need to you need to have it in a sort of functional place and able to work, but stripped of some of the, some yeah. of the the madness. Huge apologies to all the excellent people that live in Hemel Hempstead. Hemel people from Hemel can be fine. It's just a crap. I'm from Croydon. Don't trust me. I know crap. Town. Okay. Um, Karen, turning to you, I mean, there's loads of questions there, obviously, the training question, um, stewardship, nurturing democracy and so forth, but also perhaps, you know, Meg's particular point about being blocked by government, is that, is that really the, the problem here? So there's a number of points that have been raised. I mean, I think, first of all, just the, the ideas of moving parliament. The big problem I have is scrutinising ministers. And I've been a minister and I can tell you, your private office will fill your diary and will not look at Parliament once. And ministers become more and more distant from Parliament. That is not, that is not sustainable. We need to have ministers in Parliament. That is one of the reasons that whilst I really, really like voting by phone because it meant I could have a bit more flexibility, actually, I want those ministers to be in the, in the division lobby with me so I can doorstep them and I can make sure they know what my constituents are thinking because it's really tough when you're a minister to find time to actually go out and not just knock on the doors, but you know, go to your local butchers and your bakers and talk to people. You know, I get more gossip about what's going on in the town from standing at the butcher's queue on a Saturday morning than I do anywhere else. Um, and I have much more grounded opinions given to me there than I ever do um, sort of highfalutin politics or being on question time or anything like that. So, so I want government ministers in parliament and I'm afraid they're going to move the whole of government to Hemel or anywhere else. So, <laughs> you know, and, and no working from home as we know. So, um, so moral character and training. I mean, I, it's always astonished me the lack of training parties give to candidates in the run up to an election and then afterwards. As I say, I came from a professional services background. If I didn't keep up my continued professional development in terms of my technical skills, but also the personal development that was required in the firm, then I wasn't going to be getting any progress in the firm. And I don't see any reason why we shouldn't have more um, training courses, more personal skills, more uh, understanding motivation. You know, we, we focus on the sort of public speaking and media, but actually there's much mm. more to the role. So I would be all for that. 
Um, and I'd say lots of better due diligence on candidates and making sure that people who come forward, you can't have everyone fully formed. You know, we do have the right that if you've got 500 pounds, you can stand for election. You know what? You might get elected. So we can't say you've got to have been through certain processes. You've got to have certain qualifications. That's not what we want of Parliament. We want to have people from all backgrounds and um, representing the United Kingdom as it is, not the United Kingdom as some people would perhaps like it to be. On stewardship, I mean, I've always had a rule of thumb with all of the stuff that we do of how would I feel if it was on the other foot and I wasn't in the governing party? What if it was the other side were putting this on us? And how would I feel at that point? And if I think, actually, I think that's okay, then probably it's okay. If I think I'd be utterly outraged and I would be shouting from the rooftops as to how bad it is, then we probably shouldn't be doing it. Because one day it will be someone else in government. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Um, and, and, you know, R&R, &R, actually, if we took this from current MPs and said, what's the right thing to do for this building? There's no way that we'd be having the debates we're having. It would just be sorted out. And then final point on government control the order paper. They do, but we saw only a couple of weeks ago that you can control the order paper and it is possible to get items onto the order paper around um, a privileges committee inquiry. Uh, so it can be done uh, where there's a will. It can be done. The theme there. Hannah, final thoughts from you. Thanks. Um, so I absolutely, totally agree, Meg. And the irony of writing a book where you complain that when people badmouth parliaments, you destroy trust in parliament, and then having an event where you talk about lots of problems in parliament, is that, that irony is not lost on me. And I absolutely agree that you know, the vast majority of MPs are, you know, Public, you know, public-spirited and doing a job that a lot of us would not want to do, and you know, we ought to be grateful <laughs> to them. Thank you, Karen. Um, but you know, there's, a, there's always a but. Um, you know, as as Anand was saying, you know, sometimes there is behaviour which is um, unacceptable, and that that needs to be called out. And I'm afraid I also cannot answer your question about drug use. Um, I mean, I know that what's been reported around, you know, drugs being found in lots of places on the estate, um, tra resi residual traces of drugs, I should add. Um, but, um, I, yeah, I don't know, maybe that's a scandal yet, yet to break, and maybe it's not. Uh, well, who, and know, who knows? Well, square as well, yeah. I've never seen it either. <laughs> so so they're obviously not coming near me. You need a different, different panel on that one. Um, in terms of the training point, I think it's a really interesting one. Um, and I, I totally agree, again, on the sort of... Um, most people in most professions expect to have support and training, and yet the people who we ask to run the country, we expect to be perfectly fully formed people when they arrive. Um, I mean, to an extent, you know, they also make that assumption, and it can be very hard, speaking as someone who's <laughs> been in the House, to get MPs to, to, to accept that they, they need to be trained. So there are some who say, why don't I get more training? I'd like more support. And then there are a whole set who sort of think it's an absolute outrage that anyone would even suggest that they could be improved in any way. Um, so, but we have seen a change in that, I think. So I think we've certainly seen a change in relation to select committees over, I would say, the last 10 years. It used to be absolutely the case that no select committee would ever think that they needed sort of any sort of training or reflection or discussion about anything. And now, I would say most committees at some point engage in some of those processes and ask, you know, for help with their questioning skills or whatever it is they think they need. And that has changed a lot. And I think that's to do with different cohorts of MPs coming through the House 
and yeah, changing expectations. And so, so maybe if we can get there in relation to sort of the, the process of doing the job, maybe we can get there uh, in relation to some of this more sort of HR-related things. Because I think that I strongly feel that Anand is, is right, that there are definite sort of sets of things and, you know, related to the MPs' expenses scandal and to bullying and, and to, to now these, these, these questions we're facing now. You know, there were just rules that MPs set for everyone else. There was absolutely no reason why they should not be following themselves. Um, and the argument that, um, you know, Parliament is special and an exception just, just doesn't wash. And I have a feeling there was no... Oh, um, so Meg's question about, you know, why isn't the Backbench Business Committee being used more? I mean, that, I guess, is a question for I individual um, MPs. The, the MPs on, you know whether they're taking those questions to the Backbench Business Committee and then the Backbench Business Committee MPs as to why they are, are not accepting, you know, the opportunity mm. to create debates on, on that. But I think there's obviously a difference between a, a, a motion where something could actually, a decision could be made and a change could happen as opposed to just discussing, discussing an issue. Um, and, yeah, I think... Thank you, uh, and I'm really sorry we've, we've run out of time. Thank you also for those online for some fantastic questions, many of which would make an excellent uh, event or event series in and of themselves. So hopefully at the IFG we will come to those in the coming weeks, months, years. Um, thank you all for the great questions here. Thank you to our excellent panel, Chris Cook, Karen Bradley, and of course, Hannah White. Uh, the video will be online in the next 24 hours if you want to watch it back again. Um, and for those of you in the room, obviously, please do stay around and buy yourself a copy of Hannah's very good book. Uh, for those of you watching at home, you can buy it online um, and come to the Institute and get Hannah to sign it. Um, but um, really glad to have had this discussion today. I think it is worth remembering that there is a huge amount that is good about our House of Commons, um, things that we want to fix, and that's really the reason why we should all be working out how to do that. Thank you. <laughs>